Fire. Welcome back. Did you get your double shot red eye? Rift Tindret tea? How about a little Pentatone? All set? All right then. Let's get started. Welcome to Inspired Word Cafe. I'm your host, Shimshot Obadia, they, them, and with me as always is Emmett McMillan, he, they. And this is your monthly podcast of poetry, prose, and all the flavorsome honey goodness of the written word. Here, we shine our coffeehouse spotlight on writers whose work resonates with us and does some good in being read. These are the words that inspire us. And if you just can't get enough IWC, feel free to go back in your podcast app and listen to all of our past guests and the inspiring words every single one of them has brought to the cafe. Then stay tuned in because we're bringing you outstanding Canadian voices every month until summer with even more of our favorite writers right here in your headphones. Like today's very special guest who we're thrilled to have joining us directly from Tree Six territory in London, Ontario, it's Ivan Coyote, they them. Ivan Coyote is a writer and storyteller. Born and raised in Whitehorse, Yukon, they are the author of 13 books, the creator of four films, six stage shows, and three albums that combine storytelling with music. Coyote's books have won the Relit Award, been named a Stonewall Honor Book, been long listed for Canada Reads, and been shortlisted for the Hillary Weston Prize for Nonfiction and the Governor General's Award for Nonfiction twice. In 2017, Ivan was given an honorary Doctor of Laws from Simon Fraser University. Coyote's stories grapple with the complex and intensely personal topics of gender identity, family, class, and queer liberation, but always with a generous heart and a quick wit. Ivan's stories manage to handle both the hilarious and the historical with reverence and compassion and remind us all of our own fallible and imperfect humanity, while at the same time inspiring us to change the world. Today, Ivan will be reading from their 13th book, Care Of, released last June by McClelland and Stewart. And to kick off the new year right, Ivan Coyote has generously helped us put a little extra something special together for this month's episode, so stay tuned to hear more about that. Then we'll wrap things up with our live local writer feature where I catch up with Brianna Ferguson, she, her, from her home on the unceded territory of the Shuetmik Nation in Salmon Arm, BC, as she gets ready for the launch of her very first poetry collection, A Nihilist Walks Into a Bar, recently released from Mansfield Press. Which you can pick up now along with Ivan Coyote's Care Of from booksellers everywhere. Though we're pretty partial to ordering books from your local independent bookstore. And links to to learn more about today's guests can be found down in your show notes along with all the links from this episode. Now, Ivan Coyote, welcome to the Inspired Word Cafe podcast. Thank you both for having me. I'm uh, I'm excited. Yeah, we're excited as well. I love a cafe. Yeah. Even um, an online one. Yes. Pretty great. It is. It is. Um, so you're going to be reading uh, to us uh, from Care Of. I am. I'm going to read, uh, I can't remember what chapter number it is, but it's called Volcano. But I'm going to start with um, saying that it's both an honor for me and my responsibility, I feel, to acknowledge that I am joining you tonight from the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, the Haudenosaunee, the Lanapawak, and the Attawandaram peoples, who are the original and rightful caretakers of this land that I am currently living and working on. And when I was getting my notes together for today, I, uh, I thought, you know, what I want to talk about is how stories beget more stories. I want to talk about how a piece of your own writing can wobble off into the world on its toothpick legs and then somehow slip back into your life years later, all grown up and changed and 
riding sometimes on the tongue of a stranger. So let's start at the beginning of this story, shall we? I'm going to read you a short bit from my book, Rebent Sinner, which was published by Arsenal Pulp Press, go Arsenal Pulp Press, uh, in the fall of 2019. And it's a piece called The Shame, a love letter. Do you remember all of your shame? Like I do? Does it creep into your chest when you wake up too early? Does it lie there, coiled beneath your scars? Does it trickle down between the muscles of your back when you sweat inside the shirt you cannot make yourself take off? Even on the beach, even on your birthday, born in August. We walked along the powdery sand to find a place to put our towels. And I couldn't find any words to explain why I was crying on such a sunny day. Seven days later, I can now say out loud that undressing in a crowd reveals what feels like a fading target on my chest. White semicircles where breast is now chest and round pink nipples I have not been able to feel for five years. No one is staring at you, I tell myself. There are all kinds of bodies here, I tell myself, but still, none that look like mine. What did shame ever teach me except to be ashamed? That little slip of a story went out there and did what stories do. And on March 31st, 2020, in the very early days of what turned out to be the first of the pandemic lockdowns, I received the following email. Hi, Ivan. I just wanted to write and say thank you for sharing your stories out with the world. There's a certain beauty in reading the words of shame, a love letter, at the end of Rebent Sinner, as this morning, I woke up at 1 a.m. with anxiety in my chest and figured that was as good a time as any to start your book and finish it, apparently, too. It was only a month ago that I got the chance to see you speak at the Nanaimo Public Library. That was also the same night I came out as trans to two of my friends and the first time I presented as feminine in public. I'd only been fitted for a wig three hours before because I felt like if there was any moment in time where it would be safe to take those first steps out the door in my transition, it would be there. Didn't realize at the time that I'd be spending a quarter of the time trying to keep my newfound hair out of my face. Also, I didn't realize that being there would build me up to then go out and speak with my family and a few more friends about being trans over the following weeks. It's still a long process of self-acceptance ahead of me, one that may never have an end, but one that I'm glad is finally moving. When I originally tried to come out over 17 years ago now, there just weren't the positive role models out there in the public like there are now, so I allowed other people to define who I was and just spent a lot of years lost and confused. Your words gave me courage and helped me move forward. That all being said, I have this vision of being in my late 70s and doing yoga on the top of a mountain in Hawaii at sunrise. That's my gravy boat. I hope that you're staying safe and healthy in the tough times of this pandemic. Looking forward to seeing you speak again the next time you're on the island. All the best. Sincerely, Victoria Gray. 
So I'd like to insert a few cosmic notes here about that magical show that night at the public library in Nanaimo on February 26th, 2020. That gig just happened to be the very last face-to-face -face show I did before I went into lockdown. Almost 300 people happily crammed themselves into that same small space together. Can you even imagine that now? Do you also want to know that February 26, 2020 would have been my grandmother Patricia's 100th birthday? So I wrote Victoria back. I wrote her about my own struggles with shame, my own long and complicated process of coming out. Here is a little excerpt from my response to her. I guess that road to self-acceptance that you wrote about in your letter is a long one, it turns out. And maybe parts of it are a bit of a traffic circle, if you know what I mean. So by my math, you came out this time, a little over six months ago. How is it all going? I suppose by now you have figured out which of the guys at work or school or yoga are the biggest transphobes. And hopefully someone has surprised you by being cooler and more supportive about it all than you thought they would be. Hopefully you have tamed your wig and found some clothes that make you feel confident and powerful, unstoppable, beautiful. I hope you are finding only love as you unwrap yourself. Myself, I can't really remember an exact day or moment or even month or year that I finally came to terms with being and especially calling myself trans. I know that the I am the only one on this crowded beach feeling has been in my shadow for all of my life. I've never been able to lose it, even at home, under a high noon northern July sun and surrounded by those who know me the best, it still sticks to my heels and follows me everywhere. I have come to the realization that, for me, part of being trans is just what the prefix itself means occurring in loan words from Latin, transcend, transfix, on this model used with the meanings across, beyond, through, changing thoroughly, transverse, in combination with elements of any origin, trans, empirical, trans value. Trans was a word first and most commonly used in chemistry. So basically, I am a chemical poem that means beyond. I am moving and changing. I am borrowing an ancient word and altering it just enough to make my tongue recognize the shape of it in my own mouth. I've never been to Hawaii, but I intend to go for sure one day, sometime in the after of all of this. I've always dreamed of going there. I hope to meet you on top of that mountain on an island with lava rolling red-orange and turning stone to liquid and then cooling itself into another shape deep under us both. There will be ash in the sky from the becoming. Our old bones will creak and snap at first and we will stretch and breathe and move as the sun comes up and shows us another day made new. With much love, Ivan. Thank you so much for that. 
Thank you, Ivan, so much. You're welcome. I was just remembering writing that one, um, and I make a reference to six months. It has been six months since um, since that night, so that would put it um, March, April, May, June, July, July. Um, would put it in July, so it was right in the middle of like probably the most intense bout of writing that I that I've ever done. I, I sometimes wrote up to 11 hours a day when I was working on this manuscript and I would just pick a letter and then just really let it settle itself under my skin. I would read it like 30 times so that I had every single point that the letter writer had made or question or had it all sort of really in the forefront of my brain. And then I would take these long showers and go walk the dog. And I remember um, when I was trying to craft that uh, chemical poem bit, um, I got really, really into the text of of each letter uh, so much that it was like almost a trance. I can't describe it in any other way. There would be almost nothing in my head except for what I was thinking about and how to shake the right story loose for each letter. And um, that's an extremely, as an artist, I'll just speak for myself, that's an extremely difficult headspace to get into um, where you have shut out all other distractions. I would put my phone on airplane and leave it there all day. And uh, it was sort of a magical time. I know from reading it and I know from the space it takes me back to when I read it out loud, I, I know that this letter was right in the middle of that, where I was really just letting the process um, take hold of me in a, in a kind of a pretty foundational way. Yeah, I don't want to sound too like a yoga teacher or something like that, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I feel that, right? Like that. That intimacy, the, that that connection, that really struck me, uh, and and I think probably everyone who's read this. Uh, but but I wanted to start on a personal note here by saying just how happy I was that you picked this letter to read uh, on our podcast. Um, well, I love every single letter in this book. Volcano struck uh, a particular chord for me because like the letter writer, I also came out as trans right as COVID-19 was becoming a pandemic. So I couldn't help but find a kinship there. And that's probably the aspect of this book that I love most is that feeling of connection uh, something I I've seen you bring to all of your live shows, uh, regardless of how much your audience's own experiences line up with the specifics of a story you're telling, um, there always seems to be that bit, that, that singularity. Uh, could you start by telling us how you managed to bring that intimacy to the page with, with such beauty and relevance to our times? Just a little light question to start off the discussion. Hey, um, I think for me, it's part of part of my own sort of self invented spiritual practice. And I actually, um, I actually wrote about it a little bit in the letter to Adri, which is one of the earlier letters in the book. 
but uh you know a, a lot of people say oh thank you for being so vulnerable on stage or you know it must be so vulnerable and people take what they take uh from 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 a from a performance and and that's fine and it's not my business to interpret that for for each person but i never feel vulnerable on stage uh, in fact it's one of the most powerful places i've ever stood in my life and um it's a it's a, an immense honor and there's there's a pretty fundamental power in it and also a responsibility i think so i just try to access that place and in the letter to adria i describe it as i'm not sure how i came up with this but i i imagine that there's a a hinge like a there's a seam right here there's two hinges on either side of my uh, rib cage and i just really just imagine opening up my rib cage and just removing anything hard or made of bone or protective from my chest and my heart when i go to perform and i guess for some people that would be an extremely vulnerable act and maybe emotionally it does it does because vulnerable if you look it up it means uh, open to attack but i think there's something about the stage that protects you um while you're engaged in that i i don't find i don't i don't ever find myself feeling open to attack on stage but i sometimes do in the book signing lineup afterwards that's where i feel like i have to uh be more protective of myself and of my own sort of energy and uh you know those interactions i find um can be more fraught but that's really what i do uh when i when i get on stage i see it as a as a feedback loop with the with the audience in a way you know um of i send this story out and this kind of love out and uh and then it comes back having collected little bits of the listeners or the people that i'm communing with i sound so no it uh, sounds great yeah <laughs> but yeah. it's hard to describe i'm trying to describe something that's very indescribable first of all i'll say mm -hmm. that right mm -hmm. and it's something that i think anyone who steps on stage for what i would consider the right reasons glimpses sometimes you know you know and over the years it's been 27 28 years something like that of like you know intentional as a storyteller and a text-based performer and uh you know you have five to ten gigs a year in the in the before of course um to me where i would achieve this kind of yeah this really beautiful feedback loop um this really beautiful cycling of energy between the performer and the audience and truly a live performance you know um so i would go back and dissect those i'm always really really um hyped up after a gig i don't sleep very well uh often for hours after and um sometimes even all night after uh you know and i often dissect it and try to figure out what worked and what didn't and and nail down the, those kind of like all the little x factors that come into play and then try to repeat what i'm capable of affecting 
because sometimes it's uh, it's out of your control you know you can't control who's in the audience you can't con- control you know the environment what's been going on in the news that day the weather outside like all of these things are factors to that magic that happens or doesn't and to what degree that magic is allowed to prosper mm-hmm. we've been talking a lot about um community and the relationships that we have uh, throughout the book and things like that and there's kind of a theme of broken expectations that runs throughout this book which feels like it symbolizes a lot of queer and trans community experience like from a father's internal struggle trying to overcome his unrealized prejudices to finding chosen family in unlikely places to just realizing how many endless closets there can be to coming out some of these are more familiar to some of us than to others but what i really appreciated here was how you did didn't stop at an expectation being broken alone. Um, and I wonder if you might be able to speak to the ways that you go through those moments, which we often see the curtain close and go beyond the coming out and celebrating what comes after that. Well, I guess I don't see them as moments, you know, and I learned this most profoundly uh, doing school shows because, you know, high school junior high school high school kids their questions are like when did you transition Mm -hmm. like oh so you're asking me a question that you think has a date not a decade or two decades and I've been transitioning for 52 years and I don't know where I am at in the process yet I hope I'm not finished you know or or um, did it hurt? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, did what hurt? Did what hurt? Like, <laughs> so there's the the hard and fast. Like, I came out to my mother. That we could put a date on, but to say I came out to my mother when I was 18 years old doesn't encapsulate the fact that our relationship, in terms of how we navigate around and understand each other is still ongoing so we've been having a process so even that one thing that you could potentially put a fixed date on doesn't encapsulate what that how that changed and how that continues to change and how our relationship has been morphing you know and I and I say this to especially youth because they you know they want to know does your grandmother still love you and so one of the things I want to I want them to know is that no matter how when you come out to your parents as queer or trans, no matter how that process, how that event happens and unfolds in that moment, that's not going to be how it always is. People people learn stuff, people change, people there's a reaction, there's fallout, there, of all of those things are real, they're real, and I don't mean to dismiss them or make light of them or or make them smaller, but however your parents react in that moment is not they're not going to stay frozen in that space forever. And the relationships are cyclical and ongoing. So I guess I don't see those I don't see that event as a fixed time and space. I see that event as a beginning of an unfolding, if that answers your question. That does. Just like I don't see transition as having a beginning and an end, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. I'd, 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 I can only speak for my own process. I've never, I've never been to a place where I'm like, and, and done. 
now I've done I've, I've done that. So now I can move on, you know, and just and just when I said that, I don't know if this is means anything or not. Um, I got I've been getting these weird pains in my right nipple for the from the from the nerves magically regenerating after top surgery. Uh, it would be 2013, eight years later, my nipple just decided to go. Yeah, uh, you're right, Ivan, we're still uh, we're still figuring out our nerve endings down here. So still not quite done. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, that, that is just so, so <laughs> that's a, that's an incredible, incredible thing. Uh, yeah. N- nipple sensations always, always a wonderful <laughs> thing. But, but I, I really feel that is like, I mean, not, well, I mean, I guess I, I do feel my nipples, but, um, but I mean, I, I also feel <laughs> that, that transition is this long haul. And that's what you bring up, I think, so much in uh, not just Care Of, but specifically in Volcano, is that it is this long process. And for me, personally, I I felt that as well. It, it took me 10 years of from the point of like figuring out my gender identity to actually being able to come out. And I think it would be a shame if, you know, at that 10 year point, it was like, okay, I'm out, that's done, check the box and, and that's it. Because there is so much I feel like I learn every day from being out to the world. Uh, and, and a lot of that courage really does come from reading books like yours and hearing voices like yours. And, and that comes from care. Um, so. That the care you know in in care of, but that that care across community uh, that I've personally gained. So to close off our time today, I just wanted to go back to that title, care of, because there really is a, a deep and abiding care felt throughout this collection of letters. Every single exchange uh, is given the feeling of being the most important thing on your mind at the time, both as, as writer and reader, you get that sense, no matter how long or little uh, you, uh, Ivan, have, have known the letter writer or, or what your relationship with them is uh, or has been, there is a tenderness at work in these exchanges that makes me feel loved uh, and held and warm and, and fuzzy all over. It's a sensation I've gotten from all of your writing. Uh, and somehow it just seems to get stronger each time, no matter how crazy or cruel the world can get on those bad days. So I was hoping you might share with us where the heart of your care comes from and what the act of caring means to you as a writer and a human. Well, care of um, the title itself came from when I first was writing uh, Loose End, my column in Extra West, which I did for 11 years. Uh, I used to get, before things went online, I used to get letters and I used to get letters at Arsenal as well. And they would always be care of Extra West or care of. And back in the day, you used to write like writers, snail mail and um and it used to be care of. And I always loved the thought that that letter was held by someone who cared 
enough to hold on to that for you so that you could get it safely right uh i like i liked the the imagery behind that and the metaphor behind that and because they were it was letters um I, I knew that I wanted to call the book care of like at the very beginning. And luckily I did, I got no pushback um, on that. That was the sentiment. And um, yeah, I, I really did in the process, you nailed it pretty correctly. I did take that person's letter and it's essential questions or queries. I did take it and make it the most important thing in my day. Uh, as I sat down to write, and again, it was the those days of um, of pandemic lockdown that afforded me that. Right, I knew I had a job starting, so I was going to be able to pay the bills when the money was running out. So that was a huge privilege that a lot of us weren't afforded, especially touring artists. And so I could just, I could just really, really let it really get inside my blood vessels and under my skin and in my head, and really, really radically listen to the person who was writing me you know the only tragedy in this is that i've gotten so many letters now beautiful letters <laughs> i got one from a young trans guy living on one of the gulf islands and i haven't written him back yet because he's got such an essential question he says we talk so much about toxic masculinity and i know how to identify that what does positive masculinity look like and I've been thinking on that one since I got that letter and I don't have a fucking clue yet how to respond to that guy. You know, especially since if you've read Care Of, you know that like the oldest letter in there took me 11 years, right? Like the, when I say the, I'm into the long conversation, like I'm not kidding. And, and you know, when I'm, when I'm presented with something like, uh, what does positive masculinity look like as a question? in the world right now, like, I'm not going to shoot my mouth off without some deep, deep, deep thinking, right? So yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess to sum up that it would be like really, really, really making time in not just in my day, but in my head and in my life for the long conversation. We live in a world that values the hot take so much right now, that it's terrifying. Like, especially when you're grappling with such important questions. You remember the, this, the sort of story of, the, of the, the seeker who goes to see the old wise man or the prophet or call that person whoever, whatever you want, or the goddess or the, or the, the, the crone. Imagine climbing up the mountain and waiting for counsel and then like, you know, asking your deep, deep question of the universe and then being like, hey, uh, can you pick up the answer a little bit? You know, like I gotta go, I, uh, mm -hmm. can you make it 140 characters? And, uh, you know, TikTok, <laughs> uh, TikTok there, uh, wise man, but you know, but time's money. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I, I bring back the long conversation to sum that up, I guess. And, you know, taking the time to really, to really, really listen to what you think someone is asking you to really, really um, see what uh, 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 in the question, um, what, what resonates, and then find the right story 
uh, that they that you think that person needs, I guess. And you know, we've talked about doing a care of part two, and I've certainly got the letters for sure, for sure now. But um, I don't know. I'm not sure if I've got another one like that in me um, yet. I have to think about it. I'll have to think about it. But uh, you might have to think about it for another eleven years. Or so. <laughs> yeah, you know, I do know that writing this book changed me. It changed me on a pretty mm -hmm. uh, fundamental level. It really did. I learned a lot uh, in the process of 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 putting this book together um, and being able to have that time to think. And I I know that no matter what the world looks like whatever we step back into, I am going to take a lot of the lessons that I learned and hold them very, very close to me. I don't, people who talk about going back to normal, I don't want to go back to normal. I want to go back to different. Yeah. Well, I, I think we want to, we want to go back to different right along with you. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, I just I, I want to thank you so much, Ivan, for for taking the long conversation with us. Yeah, so much amazing conversation that happened is really wonderful. Well, it was facilitated deeply by both of your very careful reading and and uh, smart questions. So thank you both for that. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. Thank it you. was yeah, uh, it was it was an honor and a pleasure. Likewise, I look forward to checking out more of both of your work. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Up next, we're hitting the town and catching up with our local literary scene right here in the Okanagan Valley. This month, I caught up online with Brianna Ferguson as she was preparing for her live virtual Vancouver book launch of A Nihilist Walks Into a Bar, hosted by Massey Books, one of our absolute favorite independent bookstores, which we've also linked to down below in the show notes. Brianna Ferguson, she, her, is a writer and teacher from the Okanagan Valley, a current MFA candidate at the University of British Columbia. She also holds a BA in creative writing and a B.Ed. in secondary education from UBC. Her poems and stories have appeared in various publications across North America and in the UK, including Manola Review, Jokes Review, and Ducey. She has also been a contributing writer with Vancouver Weekly since 2017. A Nihilist Walks Into a Bar, recently published with Mansfield Press, is her first book. My dog looks cutest when she's curled into a perfect circle, her nose tucked into her asshole. The number of people who will lick a sidewalk condom is zero, but the number of people who will let my dog lick them in the mouth after she's licked a sidewalk condom is definitely not zero. There's no way I could even touch the flusher on a floor model toilet without washing my hands. One time, my uncle licked the elevator buttons in the hospital to show me I shouldn't fear germs. He didn't die, but a part of me did. So many dangers are all in your head. That doesn't mean they can't kill you. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that that oh, is thanks, just, Shim that is just like I don't know, it makes me laugh. It, it's really hard not to like want to just giggle <laughs> throughout that. Uh, it's, it's so <laughs> so funny. Um, <laughs> I, I I just uh, kind of kind of starting off the the first question that I have for you is just kind of around the um, the role that humor plays 
in your work because uh, this one's about your dog, but you get into some, uh, let's say, heavier uh, topics throughout this book <laughs> as well. And you manage to balance it out with a lot of these uh, funny moments uh, and not necessarily the same way that uh, a lot of poets will lean into humor with writing where it's like this um, ironic or detached sense of humor of like but actually it's sad kind of thing uh, you just get into some like <laughs> ridiculously clownish funny like dog licking a condom kind of stuff um, but it all seems to fit <laughs> could, could you just uh, kind of describe what it's like writing that for you <laughs> absolutely yeah it, uh, I think it probably stems a lot from my my family and my upbringing um, where just stuff always seemed to happen to us. I know everyone has these mantras in their families, but my family's like main mantra is I've never heard of this before or I've never seen this before because every time we go to do something, it's always a precedent of some sort. It's always just like the first confusing tragedy or iteration of a tragedy that anyone's ever seen and we need to kind of muddle through it together. So to deal with those things all the time, we just sort of laugh because it's all that we can do um so that really extended i suppose into just the construction of me as a person <laughs> um often there's not much that i can do beyond laughing at something um you know we always have a hell of a lot less agency than we think we do but we can laugh so it's it's something that i like to lean into um and then yeah creatively i i don't feel like i can write anything really unless i'm trying to look for the dark comedic aspect to it um, if I just sort of focus on, you know, this sad thing happened and it was sad and the people involved were sad and how sad is that thing to have read about it just now and to share, you know, it, it just sort of dies in the water there. Um, so the only real spin I can put on anything or the only personal mark I can add to anything is humor. <laughs> um, so I do, and that's the only way I can get published or write anything. So, yeah. Well, I've, I'm very sure, having read other things you've written, that you can definitely get published uh, with more than just uh, <laughs> the the wry, dark humor uh, that, that you do so well. Uh, but I feel like that, that brings us kind of to the, the outline of the book uh, itself, kind of the, the way you formatted it uh, in, in terms of its structure, but even just like the title, A Nihilist Walks Into a Bar. Like it starts as the setup for a joke. And I feel like it's not disappointing. This this particular uh, poem very much has that setup as a way to get into it. Um, could, could you just kind of talk to me a little about uh, what it was like kind of writing with that joke setup in mind? Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of this poem, which is uh, kind of like this one long joke um this is maybe a little more <laughs> relevant for our times uh than than uh i don't know if you you were uh intending it to be but that kind of a format as a way of engaging poetry is something that's kind of always interested me and i love the way that you just kind of run with it in this book uh so could could you just kind of describe what that was like yeah definitely thank you um that's a great question so yeah, when I was first starting to kind of compile my work and see if there was like a book there in any way, um, I was really attracted to the the poems I had in there about drinking, um, about any real method of finding some sort of pleasure in like a lot of the poems are quite contemporary. So there's pandemic stuff in there, there's school stuff. And, um, you know, not that like school is kind of, you know, the place I go to to be happy generally, but there's just always so much so much other stuff going on 
when you try to have any sort of pleasure <laughs> in your life uh, and school seems to attract those other things. So I was really attracted to the idea of what we do to sort of find solace in the madness and in our everyday lives and in the stuff that we're struggling with. Um, and I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I love Bukowski. I love the the complainers, the down and out, the drunks, the all that sort of stuff in literature, not so much in life, but um, I love the literature surrounding that. Um, and I was just really attracted to the idea of um, like nihilism, you know, in general for me, isn't really that nothing matters or nothing has any sort of meaning to it. It's that nothing has any inherent meaning. So there's no real like vice or virtue objectively floating around in the universe that attaches itself to our actions. Um, but we have the ability to assign vice or virtue to things. We have that agency. And I find that incredibly liberating. So when I take an MFA in, you know, what people are always talking about to, you know, or describing as the last years of <laughs> humanity, and I spend my days writing poetry as everything goes to shit around me, I'm like, well, whatever, that's, I can decide that that's the most important thing. I can decide that sitting down and writing a poem in a pub and having a couple pints is the most important thing. And then it becomes so for me. So each little moment in here, if it's just, you know, my dog licking her asshole when I'm sitting on the couch trying to mark papers, or it's, you know, my, my fear of germs, my fear of all the various things outside there that can kill me right now, that's fine. That's not a life unlived. <laughs> if I'm just sitting in my trailer in a small town somewhere, that's fine. If I have no clue what I'm doing with my career, that's fine. Um, all of these things are fine. And I just like that the agency of a nihilist walks into a bar. It's someone, you know, deciding exactly what they're going to do. And that thing may appear humorous or meaningless or frivolous to somebody else, but oh well, so. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's kind of the mood for all the rest of the poems throughout the collection as well. I mean, not necessarily, there's some genuine sadness in there. But there's also some genuine levity, as is as there is in life, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that definitely comes through a lot. We have so much of uh, just you know listening to that that one poem you read there, and from other content throughout the book, there is this kind of um, disregarding of the idea of uh, a pre-prescribed happy ending kind of thing uh, and just kind of like <laughs> dusting off my undergrad uh, philosophy electives, you know, thinking about um, the, the whole idea of nihilism and this thing of not there isn't necessarily uh, the the one happy way to, to be your life. You can assign uh, that happiness um, or joy or, or sadness, like you said, uh, as as you find it and find that meaning mm -hmm. for yourself. Uh, I feel like this collection does that particularly well, um, but it can also be uh, maybe uh, a bit heavier um, or, or harder to, to get through when kind of accepting that your your fate really kind of uh, is, is in your own hands. And this grapples with mm -hmm. that of the the amount of happiness is within your own hands even though it may be limited from these external factors um could you just go into a little more about how you went about putting that together and, and just kind of as as a poet and a person how you balance that out um I, i'm assuming you subscribe to quite a bit of nihilism in your your day-to-day -day life <laughs> uh either that or it just comes out really clear in these poems um but but how, <laughs> how how does that kind of balance out for you all those things um well yeah it's uh 
it kind of stems, I suppose, from why I originally got into writing anyway. Um, I was talking about that in my uh, thesis support paper earlier today, actually, for my my memoir, where uh, um, there was a time when I had decided I was going to move to Australia, and I sold everything I had and saved up all this money and went there, and I was going to like become Australian. I was going to surf. I was going to get an Australian accent, as awful as that is. I had all these ideas, and I was there like two months, and I lost everything <laughs> and couldn't find a job and came home and was sleeping on the floor in my parents' house. Um, I didn't even have a bed anymore. I had no car or phone or anything. And I was like, oh my God, I have nothing. I was 22 years old. I hadn't gone to school. I hadn't done anything. And um, I was just at one of the lowest points in my life. And it, uh, my mom helped get me a job at, um, in housekeeping at this resort up the road. And it occurred to me one day when I was folding this bed uh, or this sheet on a bed that, um, I didn't really have anything going for me, but what I could do was write and I could sit down and make something. Um, so everything was absolutely going to shit around me and I had no power over anything, but I could make something. Um, and it literally just reversed my mood a hundred percent. It was a total 180. It was just like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? I'm not in school. I don't have money. I just, I can write something. Um, and just the thought was so clear. It was like, I'd been writing every day with a purpose. So I just started writing and it made everything so, so completely much better. Um, completely much better. That's some gorgeous sentence structure there. But anyway, <laughs> um, don't take that as an example of what's in the book. But uh, yeah, I just sort of held on to that feeling. So whenever nonsense is happening to me, you know, like a lot of people obviously use their creative outlet as a way to filter things and understand things. Um, and it's probably cliche to say that that's what I do, but that's exactly what I do. Like if a little thing happens to me somewhere, a little injustice in a line at the store, a little, whatever, a little moment where I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't feel a hundred percent happy with everything right now. I write it down and I try to find some sort of lens to look at it in a different way. And that's pretty much everything that happened in this book, ranging from minutia of a daily life to the, the many things that led to my leaving my faith and my church and, um, you know, ultimately abandoning notions of a God or a narrative for my life. So all that's in there. <laughs> or I, I hope it is anyway. Uh, in, in other words, uh, Nietzsche would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> Nietzsche would be proud. I would hope so. Yeah. Nothing that matters. Yeah, I, th I think I think he'd get it. <laughs> Hopefully. Oh, well, I, in, in a kind of a, a weird roundabout way, uh, or maybe maybe not so weird, uh, but in a, in a little bit, a bit of a roundabout way there, I, I feel like that is exactly the stuff that you capture in the that moment of your dog licking a condom and then uh, licking other people's <laughs> faces, uh, which, which is just always, <laughs> always going to stick with me now in the worst possible way. <laughs> but... That is exactly what you're talking about. And so uh, at first when you picked that to read, I thought, oh, that's just kind of like a, a funny thing to, to to focus on because it's a hilarious poem uh, and, and it's lovely. And who doesn't love hearing about your dog licking a condom on the street, which is gross. But it does in its own way very much encapsulate the spirit and nature of this entire book not to um <laughs> dismiss your your writing career as as a dog licking a condom but uh which i feel like i'm just saying <laughs> way too much now but that is very much uh the, the nature of what you're 
writing here. Uh, so just kind of to end us off, our, our last little question here, I was wondering if you might just kind of walk us through that moment of walk, watching your dog licking the condom and, and kind of bring us all the way to how that becomes a poem uh, for you uh, and where that takes you creatively. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, my husband would say that it's like, you know, he likes to joke that I'm going for shock all the time and I'm like, I'm so not, I'm so going for, you know, I mean, like I want to jar somebody into a moment of thinking about something slightly differently, but I'm not just like, tee dog looking condom, you know, like I, uh, when I saw that happen, I saw it all play out in, you know, a five minute stretch once before we were walking downtown and she found a condom and started licking it. And I was like, oh, Jesus, God, and like, you know, tore her away from it. And then like literally 30 seconds later, I bumped into a teacher friend of mine from work and she knelt down and let Charlie start licking her all over her face and in her mouth. And as as the tongue was going for this woman's mouth, I was like, oh, no, she just licked a condom. And the woman was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> and just there was this like shock on her face at first, but then it was like she tried to roll with the punch of it. Like she'd already gone too far at that point. So she had to just own the moment. And I was like, oh, what a delightfully human moment to, for me to have witnessed where this woman, rather than like admit that she made a mistake or, you know, freak out a little bit, was just like, that's fine. And I was like, how interesting. Is it fine? Because that nothing woman, nothing happened to that woman. She didn't, nothing, she didn't contract anything. She didn't get anything. Everything was fine. And I was like, oh, cool. You can just kind of rewrite the narrative as it unfolds before you. Um, and I thought it was really great that we could sort of have that revelation together um, through this disgusting, you know, low little moment of just daily life that these things happen, you know, and like, um, and no one's like looking at them as, as particularly profound. Um, but we were sort of able to do that and we were able to elevate that in some way, um, you know, by it ending up in, you know, literature, quote unquote. <laughs> capital L literature, as I like to say. Um, and yeah, I, I love that idea. I love the idea that poetry is this thing that's reserved for, you know, the, the learned elite um, in society. And it, it really is not or doesn't need to be. It's just this moment <laughs> that allows you to express yourself and sort of marry, you know, a sidewalk condom with the written word. So... I think that is just such a um, s such a, a wonderful <laughs> way of wrapping wrapping up uh, this this honestly really wonderful and just hilarious book. Yeah, I'm happy to see kind of where it goes in the world. I've sold two copies now through uh, the the elite uh, Buckingham Palace and Salmon Arm here, so I actually have to <laughs> head down there and bring them some more stock in a little bit here. So. You know, everyone said that I uh, couldn't sell poetry to the small town. And uh, here we are selling poetry to the folks of my small town. So, you know, what are you going to do about that, uh, critics? So <laughs> that, that is uh, incredible and just uh, a wonderful uh, accomplishment. <laughs> Hopefully the first of many. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much for, for sitting down and chatting uh, about this, this book uh, and hopefully People will be picking it up uh, and loving it in small towns and other places <laughs> uh, very, very soon. Awesome. Thank you, Shimshon.
That's all for this time. Thank you for joining us today. Whoa, whoa, hold up there, Shimshine. That can't be everything already, can it? I mean, some of us have been going stir-crazy with so many events being canceled and having to go back into social isolation to avoid the spread of Omicron this month. Surely we've got to have something else to tide folks over. You know, now that you mention it, I think we do have one more thing. Like, say, a special surprise from Ivan Coyote? See, I didn't forget what we promised at the top of the episode. All right, you've got it. To help us start the new year right and fight those winter blues, Ivan has very kindly helped us create a special bonus episode that's being released right alongside this one. We've done an extra detailed deep dive with them into their writing process. And we get further into the heart of how they use storytelling as queer liberation with all the care and consideration their work is loved the world over for. So what are you waiting for? Cue it up in your podcast app because we've got even more inspiring words coming to you right away. And then we'll be back in a month with none other than Joshua Whitehead, he him. Joshua is the most recent winner of Canada's annual Battle of the Books, Canada Reads, for his critically acclaimed novel, Johnny Appleseed. He is a two-spirit Ojinehewa member of the Pegasus First Nation Treaty 1, whose widely published and multiple award-winning work engages indigenous literatures and cultures with a poignant focus on gender and sexuality. Trust me, you really don't want to miss this. Our podcast is a production of Inspired Word Cafe Society. The episodes are written, edited, and produced by Shimshan Obadia. Emmett McMillan composed and mixed our theme music and co-produced this episode right along with me. Our podcast logo was created by Mackenzie Ken Shaw, any pronouns, who manages our marketing. And of course, this episode wouldn't have been possible without the wonderful writerly wit of Ivan Coyote and Brianna Ferguson. Inspired Word Cafe Society is pleased to acknowledge that our podcast is created with the generous financial support of the Canada Council for the Arts, as well as funding provided in part by the City of Kelowna. We'd also like to take this moment to recognize that this is done on the unceded territory of the Sealux Okanagan people, and more importantly, that we are uninvited guests on this land. For more about the Okanagan Nation Alliance, please visit sealux.org. That's S-Y-I-L-X dot org. And for more about Inspired Work Cafe, including our upcoming programs and events, please feel free to check out inspiredwordcafe.com and follow us at Inspired Word Cafe on all social media. If you haven't had a chance yet, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really do help. And if you just love our little podcast, feel free to share it with a friend. You never know. You might have just found them their new favorite podcast, and... And, and these folks have got a bonus episode they want to get to with a whole bunch of extra special Ivan Coyote goodness. Of course they're going to tell people about the Inspired Word Cafe podcast. Everyone knows word of mouth is the only way indie podcasts like ours can grow. But right now, you're holding up the line. Well, when you put it that way. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for stopping, stopping by, by the, the cafe. cafe.